History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 427th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Kelly, on this episode, we're going to be in Tennessee, hitting a very quaint little Victorian village called Rugby. This was suggested to us by our listener, Tammy Burroughs. And there's quite a few places there that have some haunts going on. So we look forward to sharing that with everybody. Excellent. We also want to share that History Goes Bump has expanded its production. We have another podcast. We started the Ghost in You podcast, which features some of the bizarre and odd stuff in the Bible last April of 2021. And now this month, March of 2022, we are bringing out Phantasmal Crime, which is true crime with a twist. It's haunted. Yes, indeed. So you can check out that and the Ghost in You anywhere you get your podcasts. We'd love to have you sign up and subscribe. And Phantasmal is spelled with a PH for those that don't know. We have some people to welcome into the Spooktacular crew. Danielle with two L's, Kira with a K, Sarah with no H, Kelsey with a K, Rocky, and Carly with a C and an IE. Thank you so much for joining us in our Facebook group. And now, this moment, Noddity. Canada has its own version of the Grand Canyon. This is called the Nahani Valley, named for the river that runs through it. The valley is filled with deep canyons and beautiful trails. The water features whitewater rapids and hot springs. The area is accessible only by foot or plane or boat. This is all nice, but what really interests us about Nahani Valley is that it is nicknamed the Valley of Headless Men, and for good reason. Brothers Willie and Frank McLeod set off on a quest for gold in 1908 in the valley. Their bodies were found two years later on the banks of the river. They had been murdered and decapitated. Their heads were never found. Martin Jorgensen met the same fate nine years later. He too was looking for gold and sent word home that he had found it. But he never brought any home because his cabin burned down and his remains were found in the ashes. His body was missing the head. In 1945, a nameless miner from Ontario was found dead in a sleeping bag, also missing his head. The Nahani Valley is thought to be a sacred place. For these men, it was a deadly place. Who killed them and why their heads were taken has remained a mystery, and that certainly is odd. And now, this month in history. In 
the month of March on the 16th in 1903, Judge Roy Bean died. Roy Bean was born in Kentucky in the 1820s, and he spent much of his life in trouble. Much of this trouble entailed shooting people. First, there was the guy he shot in a Mexican bar. Bean ran away to San Diego, where he ended up shooting another man during a quarrel. He made his way to Los Angeles, where he killed a Mexican officer in a duel over a woman. The officer's friends hanged Bean, but the rope wasn't set quite right, and he lived long enough for the woman he was fighting over to cut him down. Next, he was off to Texas, where he actually stopped his life of crime and became a successful businessman. In 1882, he built a saloon in southwest Texas that he named the Jersey Lily in a town he founded named Langtree, both inspired by the actress Lily Langtree. Bean had seen the actress in a magazine, and he liked her. At that same time, he became a justice of the peace, and he dealt out some humorous and bizarre rulings as the, quote, only law west of the Pecos. He fined a dead man $40 for carrying a concealed weapon and threatened to hang people for using profane language. He chose jurors from his best bar patrons, and they were expected to buy drinks when in recess. He ended every wedding he officiated with, quote, and may God have mercy on your souls. He died at the age of 77 after a bout of heavy drinking. A British author founded the village of Rugby in the beautiful Cumberland Plateau of Tennessee. This was meant to be a utopia, and for a time, it really was. Large Victorian buildings were constructed, social clubs were founded, lawn tennis was played, and the library was stocked full of books and became the pride of the colony. Then it all ended amid financial issues, epidemics, and fires. The village was revitalized in the 1960s and is a place tourists can visit for a time capsule into the Victorian era and several locations in Rugby are reputedly haunted. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of Rugby, Tennessee. British author Thomas Hughes was a social reformer with a vision. Hughes was born in Uffington, Berkshire in 1822. He became a lawyer and part of the Queen's Council and supported many Christian socialist issues. The social reformer was later elected as an MP to Parliament. In 1857, his most famous work, Tom Brown's School Days, was published. This novel was semi-autobiographical and set at Rugby School, which is where Hughes had gone to school. He must have liked the name because he chose that name for a settlement he founded in the American state of Tennessee. This settlement would be his attempt to build a model village. One piece of reform that Hughes championed was doing away with primogeniture. This was the practice of the eldest son inheriting everything when his parents died. There was an organization in Boston called the Board of Aid to Land Ownership, which helped unemployed urban craftsmen start over in rural locations. Hughes heard about the group's work, and he thought the same kind of idea could work for Britain's second sons. Thomas Hughes encouraged many of the younger sons of British families to immigrate to America and find success through building his agricultural community. This would work as a cooperative enterprise. The site for rugby was chosen because the Cincinnati Southern Railroad had completed a line through this area of the Cumberland Plateau to Chattanooga. Hughes dedicated the rugby colony on October 5, 1880. A man named Franklin W. Smith laid out an early plan for rugby. The first frame structure built was known as the Asylum. We're going to name the first place the Asylum. This sounds like it's right up our alley. (laughs) 
It's Victorian and has an asylum as the first building. Although it wasn't an asylum, they just called it that. Several other homes were built as well as a three-story inn named the Tabard Inn in the first year. Croquet courts and lawn tennis courts were built, and a walkway dubbed the Meeting of the Waters was laid out. The sale of alcohol was banned, and all colonists were required to invest $5 in the commissary. A church was built primarily for the Episcopal Church, but any denomination was allowed to gather there. Literary societies and drama clubs were founded, and the Thomas Hughes Public Library was open with thousands of tomes to peruse. Over the next couple of years, stables were built, as well as sawmills, a drugstore, a general store, a butcher shop, a dairy, and many more Victorian homes. 300 people called rugby home, and they enjoyed their culturally refined lives in a beautiful wooded setting. Sounded like bliss, but there were many problems that would beset what was supposed to be a utopia of Christian socialism. Those English second sons didn't know much about manual labor or farming. The soil of the Cumberland Plateau was not good for growing crops either. In 1881, typhoid came calling and surged through the village. Shortly after that, fighting over land titles led to lawsuits. The Tabard Inn burned down in 1884. Another hotel was built on the spot, but it would burn down in 1899. Not a good spot to build. No, definitely not. Soon, the earliest colonists started leaving for greener pastures. Many would think that Hughes would be depressed with what was happening to his vision, especially after pouring $75,000 into it. But he remained hopeful, writing in 1896, I can't help feeling and believing that good seed was sown when rugby was founded, and someday the reapers, whoever they may be, will come along with joy bearing heavy sheaves with them. Well, at least he thinks positively. (laughs) That's true. That's a good outlook to have. The village was never completely abandoned, but the population dwindled considerably. Most residents from the turn of the century to the 1960s were descendants of the original colonists. There were some Appalachian families, too. By the 1960s, rugby was in a sad state with many of the Victorian buildings in disrepair. Some had burned down and others had been demolished. A young man named Brian Stagg visited the village and he saw a future for it that didn't include complete demolition. He wanted to bring it back. In 1966, Stagg started the Rugby Restoration Association and he and several locals started the work of restoring the community. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers worked on a master plan for rugby that would make it the southern gateway for a new park. This would be the Big South Fork National River and Recreation Area. Stagg was able to get Rugby Village on the National Register of Historic Places in 1972, and it's known as the Rugby Colony Historic District today. The organization changed its name in 1982 to Historic Rugby, with Brian's sister, Barbara Stagg, now at the helm. She and her husband, John Gilliatt, served as property managers and spent 32 years getting a spotlight on the village and updating by building a new visitor center and theater and founding Beacon Hill, which was a housing development. Much of the acreage around the village has been protected because of Barbara and her nephew Michael's work, and they built the Massengale Home Place and Trail in the Rugby State Natural Area in 2010. Barbara retired, and the board of directors now handles the work of restoration and special events. There are many sites to check out. The Visitor Center is Rugby's restored schoolhouse and features a century of the village's history. There is the Thomas Hughes Free Public Library, Thomas Hughes Home, Christ Church Episcopal, with its original hanging lamps that were converted to electric, stained glass windows, and an 1849 rosewood organ, Laureldale Cemetery, the Rugby Commissary where one can find handmade crafts and books, the Harrow Road Cafe, the Pioneer Cottage, and six-bedroom Newberry House Bed and Breakfast. And there seems to be spirits who have decided to continue on in rugby in the afterlife. Here are some of the haunted locations in the village. 
First, we have the Kingston Lyle Inn. This was built in the Queen Anne Gothic style. It's two stories, and this was the former home of Thomas Hughes. He didn't live in the village very often. He was over in Britain most of the time. I believe his mother came over here, and she mostly lived there. The home is surrounded by a white picket fence and has a stone path leading to the front porch. The name comes from the village of Kingston Lyle in the Vale of White Horse in Britain. Hughes might still be in the home. People report hearing disembodied snoring. <laughs> I love that. And the ghost likes to pull the blankets off of guests. He's a prankster. Next, we have the Rugby Library. The Thomas Hughes Library was built in 1882 and is a quaint little Victorian with a small steeple in the middle of the roof. The books that were brought over from Britain can still be found in the library, and people believe that the curator is still hanging around to watch over those books. All the books were dated to pre-1900, with the earliest dating back to the 1600s. There's also a story about a ghost dog that haunts the library. Yeah, I guess every so often they hear it scratching at the door to get out. So Aww. I, I don't know why there would be a dog at the library, because it's always been a library. Gotta go out and go potty. Yeah. <laughs> And I, this is amazing. This is like having a museum of books because these are old books. And I think you can still look through them. They probably give you gloves when you're opening them and stuff. But wow. So cool. Yeah. Next, we have Spirit of Red Hill Nature Art and Ottomans. Artisans Donna Hefner and Annie Patterson own the Spirit of Red Hill, which is a shop that features artwork, antiques, and fine crafts. There's also a room for rent called the Benstead Bedstead. Ha ha ha. <laughs> little alliteration there. The site was originally home to the Alexander Perigo House, which has been rebuilt here. That original structure was a boarding house first run by the Samuel Alexander family in the 1890s. The next proprietor of the boarding house was Winfield Scott Perigo and his wife, Ora. There's a spirit that haunts the location. A guest had come down after spending the night and claimed that she had a strange dream. A priest was in the dream and he was teaching the guest how to play cricket. <laughs> Usually you don't find priests <laughs> teaching cricket, but okay. Patterson took the guest into another room and showed her a picture of a priest who had lived in rugby. The guest immediately recognized the man as the priest in her dream. Wow. That is pretty cool. Usually dreams I kind of poo-poo, but that, that seems very interesting. And now on to the Rosalind House, which was built in 1886 by Montgomery Boyle, who is related to the 7th Earl of Glasgow. He rented the home to Mrs. Richard Tyson of Baltimore, who brought her son, Jesse, and daughter, Sophia, to rugby with her. Mrs. Tyson enjoyed a good party, and she hosted many of them. She's the one who named the house Rosalind, inspired by her ancestral home in Scotland. She planted an elaborate garden around the house. There was a road called High Street that Jesse would race down with a carriage pulled by a team of four horses. He often would race all the way to Sedgemoor, where the Cincinnati Southern Railroad was located. Jesse seems to have left behind a residual spirit. Visitors have reported hearing the sound of a team of horses and carriage racing along the road. Occasionally, the carriage and horses are seen, and they disappear into the nearby woods. The house has a spirit, too, that is heard sobbing. This seems to be coming from a female spirit that has been seen. Witnesses who see a picture of Sophia claim that she is a spirit they have seen. Well, there went the power for a little bit. <laughs> yep, severe thunderstorm. <laughs> Just in time for Jerry and Tracy. <laughs> I know, I'm blaming them for bringing the bad weather here. <laughs> Hillbilly horrors are down here, the hosts are, and friends of ours, and... <laughs> We're having a little bit of a storm roll through, and they're just right down the road. Yep. Barbara Stagg's brother, Brian, lived at Roslyn for a while. He started having paranormal experiences shortly after moving into the house. There were simple things like a door locking by itself or hearing disembodied footsteps in the hallway. 
Over time, the cause of these things was revealed when a female spirit dressed in Victorian clothing started appearing. She would often pace the hallway and sob. He had a friend named Sarah Bonner come over and she saw the apparition as well. Both of them confirmed it was Sophia when they saw her picture. And finally, we have the Newberry House. The Newberry House Bed and Breakfast is a cute bungalow that features six bedrooms for rent. The large Thomas Hughes suite is downstairs and the other five rooms are upstairs. Barbara Stagg of Historic Rugby said that a man named Otis Brown from Boston built the house in the mid-1880s and named it for himself, the Brown House. We've also seen his name as Ross Brown. He ran the place as a boarding house. The location changed its name to Newberry House and was run by James Milmau, Louise Dyer, and C.A. Clark. Nelson Kellogg was the next owner, and he ran the house until 1920. In 1985, Historic Rugby bought the house and restored it. They furnished it with Victorian antiques and opened it as a bed and breakfast. This is the most haunted location in the village. The laughter of unseen children is heard in the house. The most common experience guests have had is being awakened in the middle of the night and finding the spirit of a man standing near the bed. Who is this spirit? The Tabard Inn had burned down and was rebuilt, and a Mr. Davis was hired to manage the rebuilt inn. He moved to rugby from Buffalo, New York with his wife. The Tabard was the social center and often hosted dances. On one particular night, Mrs. Davis got more attention from the men of the town than he liked. She was one of the few women in town at the time. He became very jealous and brooded for a bit. His jealous rage finally overtook him and he slit her throat and then shot himself. The inn burned down again, but items from the house survived and were put in other places. Mr. Davis seems to have attached to some of those items. Is it possible that Mr. Davis is haunting the Newberry house? There could be another spirit here. A man named Charles Oldfield was an inspector, and he was sent to rugby by the board of directors in England in the early 1880s to see how the utopian village was doing. His brief visit to rugby was enough to convince him that this was the place for his family. He sent for his wife and son in England to join him. The son departed immediately, but his wife stayed behind to pack things for the move. Oldfield died the night before his son was to arrive. That is why people think his spirit is at Newberry House. He had died there waiting for his family, and perhaps he stays there still waiting for them. Women who stay in the room named after Oldfield claim that it is very cold and that they get nudged or poked by something they can't see. Is he wondering if these women are his wife? Reedhead00 wrote on TripAdvisor, I specifically asked before booking if this place was haunted. He laughed and said he hasn't heard anything since he's worked there. After a night of hearing things all around us and having a very disturbing experience, like electricity through my whole body. Well, that sounds like a cool one. That actually sounds very similar to things we've Yeah, you were touched. (laughs) We decided not to stay our second night. When we turned our keys into the nice lady working at the visitor center, she proceeded to tell us many stories of paranormal activity. Like I said, this is supposed to be the most haunted location. The guy says, oh, no, I haven't ever heard of anything. Not being very transparent there. No, must have wanted to rent that room. (laughs) No full disclosure. The area is beautiful. The people exceptionally friendly and the buildings are amazing. But do not stay at the Newberry if you are even a little sensitive. You will not sleep. Uh Uh-oh, Kelly. I still want to go there. Phantom Paranormal Investigations did an investigation at the Newberry House in February 2021. They set a REM pod up in the dining room that went off and then again when asked to make it go off again. The device went off repeatedly and for long periods until one of the investigators asked if the spirit wanted to answer some questions. She said, if you want to answer questions, turn on the REM pod. The REM pod went quiet. 
Apparently, on a previous visit, a device they set on a chair went flying across the room. Yeah, it was so funny. They'd be in another room and the REM pod would be going off. So they'd go in there and it would just be like, meh, meh. And they would try to ask questions, but it wasn't really... To me, I wouldn't identify it as actually responding to what they're saying. It was almost like they'd figured out, what is this thing? And kept going over and touching (laughs) it. Playing with it. And then when she finally asked, "Uh, do you want to answer some questions? It was like, no more noise. (laughs) No, I don't want to talk to you. So Kelly, not only did Tammy suggest this to us, but she also got a hold of some of the pages from a book that they keep on site at the Newberry House, where people who stay there share their experiences. Very cool. On October 26, 1997, so these go back quite a ways. Before I came here, I didn't believe in ghosts, but after two days in Newberry House, I truly believe and I will never be the same. We went to bed about 1 a.m., an hour after the witching hour. We had just dozed off when I felt we were not alone anymore. I sat up in the bed, and there in front of the window facing the street, I could see her standing there. I blinked my eyes a couple of times just to make sure she was there. She was. We'd put candles in each window, and though I could still see her, I could see the flicker of the candle. She was pale and dressed in a pale pink gown. I was frozen in fear and couldn't speak. I couldn't even move to wake my friend sleeping next to me. She never moved, but stared at us with piercing eyes. Then as quickly as she came, she went. Sunday as we left, I looked back up at our window. It wasn't light yet, and there she stood in the same window, looking as though she knew I was leaving. She looked sad, which I didn't understand, but I think she knew I would never return to Newberry House. Oh my. That would make me want to come back. I know, exactly. July 24th, 1998. The ghost is very mischievous. The fire alarm went off during the night and had us all up running around looking for the cause. (laughs) January 1st and the 2nd in 2000. My wife swears she heard the ghost on the stairs last night. I think she's a little less rested today than me. (laughs) Possibly. (laughs) I can't believe she didn't wake you up. September 21st of 2000. We had a lovely time, came to celebrate the birthday And it was a surprise and a pleasant one. Enjoyed walking around and seeing the old sights. Watch out for the ghost. Only comes out at night. And boy, the eerie noise it makes. October 28th of 2001. This has been an amazing visit. My parents have told me how wonderful this place is. And they were right. I came with a group that does scientific research. And boy, did we get results. Sleeping arrangements were moved because we had, quote unquote, visitors in rooms two and three. Room one was quiet. Held a seance later and had another visitor. Very angry feelings were with this visitor. They were not angry with us, but with their situation. Did they know you carried on a seance in there? We're right. happy you did that. That was my question. April 22nd, 2003. Quite an interesting night. The bullfrogs and the other critters made me feel at home, but Mr. Oldfield did not, as he invaded my dreams and then paid a visit during the wee hours of the morning. Though it was comforting to hear the house settle around us as we went to sleep, every creak seemed to catch my attention. Maybe next time I'll try a different room. June 4th, 2003. Strange doings last night. My room door locked itself. I was down in the parlor at the time. And a glass of water was in my room that hadn't been there when I left it. Also, a window shade at the front of the house was raised when I left, and it raised when I returned. So I'm assuming he's seeing it raising? I don't know. That's strange. Door opening and closing sounds from room number two, which I know was empty. When I would look, no one was there. I'm leaving. Can't sleep. Hearing voices and musical chimes. Light by my bed keeps turning itself off. Room gets very cold, then back to normal. Maybe if they'd use better punctuation and grammar, they wouldn't have had so much trouble. <laughs> Possibly. Definitely, I wouldn't have had as much trouble reading it. <laughs> May 30th, 2011. My wife and I were staying in Newberry House for the second time in two years. We were here for a funeral in Jamestown. 
A strange episode occurred at about 3 a.m. as we stayed in room number five, the Kellogg room. It first started with the door downstairs shutting. I believe it was the front door, but it woke me. I heard someone coming up the stairs and walking to just outside our door. I waited for a knock on our door, but it never came. I heard someone turning our doorknob and I asked who was there, but received no reply. But they kept trying to open the door. At first, it was gentle turns to the knob, but slowly became more aggressive. I finally yelled out of fear through the door for them to go away. The doorknob kept turning and the top of the door began to bow inward. What? (laughs) As if someone was pushing with great force. This is like the Haunted Mansion, man. I finally unlocked the door and quickly opened it to find no one there. At this point, my wife and I were terrified. I heard my cell phone beep on the dresser. My phone had full power and signal. We immediately packed up and left Newberry House and will never return. I had heard rumors about these houses being haunted, but I never believed in things like this until May 30th, 2011 at 3 a.m. in the morning. <laughs> to I be like perfectly that. exact. <laughs> I like that little ending to that one. Yeah. Precise. Because if people asked us, so when did you start believing in ghosts? Uh, I don't think I could give you an exact date and time. Rugby sounds like a cool and quaint Victorian village. A trip here is like a time travel back in time. Are there spirits here from that time as well? Is Rugby, Tennessee haunted? That is for you to decide. Sounds like a quaint little place to check out. I love Victorian houses and design, so sounds like fun. Just another place to hit in Tennessee. Yeah. We're racking up a list. (laughs) (laughs) As are all the listeners. We invite you guys to check out our website at historyghostbump.com. And if you want to send us some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. Kelly, you and I know Sherry Brake. We've met her at conventions. She is a paranormal investigator, a tour guide. She's written a lot of books. I own several of them. And I'm a subscriber to her newsletter. And apparently, she and her husband have bought some land in West Virginia, and they're building a farmhouse there. And it's my understanding that there wasn't anything else on this land before, but they have some stuff going on at their house, I guess. She wrote, We hope spring will be arriving soon, but today brought us 10 inches of snow on the farm. And their farm is Raven Rock Farm. This house is active if you get my drift. Firmly believing it now, and I'm not so sure how to respond to that. LOL. Which, I mean, I would think she should be able to respond to it. She's a paranormal investigator. Last Thursday, Perry and I were seated in the great room with our three-and-a-half-year-old granddaughter, Aurora. No TV on, no music playing, just us making small talk. We distinctly heard, all three of us, loud footsteps coming up the staircase from the basement. Loud footsteps on bare wooden steps to the point Perry jumped up yelling, Who's there? Nobody. Nothing. So we all just said, Hmm, that was weird. What can you do? So yeah, I don't know. It is West Virginia, and West Virginia is entirely in the Appalachian Mountains, which have their own little mystique to them. Is there some land spirits hanging out there? Of course, Sherry's gone around to a lot of haunted locations, so I don't know. Maybe she has something attached to something. Who knows? But cool story. And we want to give a special shout out to Jeff in his Publix truck, who happened to see us out on the road on 27. (laughs) That was so much fun. All of a sudden, we got this message on Instagram saying, hey, do you guys have a big History Goes Bump sticker on your car? I think I just saw you on Highway 27. I said, yes, you should have honked. And then he said, well, I drive a Publix truck. And I figured, well, you might have scared us a little bit. (laughs) But hey, Jeff. We want to thank you for joining us on this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode is brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We want to thank Ed Jones for raising his contribution. 
he's going to be moved into a garden crypt. And in three months, he'll have his HGB logo mug. We've had a lot of people signing up at that level. They all want their mugs, Kelly. I believe so. Thank you so much for supporting our show. We really could not produce it without our executive producers. You can find History Goes Bump on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, Google Play, and anywhere you can listen to podcasts. The water features white rock. Right where the rep is. Brothers Willie and Frank He died at the age of 77 after a bout of heavy drinking. Oh my gosh, he sounded like quite the character. I know. Can you imagine? I now pronounce you, madam wife. God have mercy on your souls, man. And the library was. The library was. Sounds like a pretty crazy place, that library. This novel was semi autobiographical. This novel was semi. This not. This. This novel was semi autobiographical. Golly, what the autobiographical? It was sort of about him. Damn it! There you go. Sounds good to me. This settlement would be his attempt to build a model village. Is that a model like out of Legos, paper? How do you build a model village? Plastic? Oh my gosh. A little bit of glue? Paint? Epoxy. (laughs) Resin. Between the thunder and the birds squawking, I just don't even know right now. Yeah, we've got. And the, don't forget, we have the emergency alarm alarm going off every (laughs) 10 minutes. Tornado! A man named Charles Oldfield was an expect expector he was an expector <laughs> door opening and closing sounds from new door opening and closing sounds from i can't say room a weeb away a weeb sorry <laughs> i don't know a trip here is like a trap travel trying time travel travel time. 